Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. improves children's health by developing better treatments and technologies. Ranked number five in the nation, we take on the most complex, rare, and life-threatening conditions because all children deserve a healthy future. Learn more at childrensnational.org slash innovation. Welcome to Launch Left, an intentional space for art and activism, a podcast, a label, a launchpad for left-of-center artists. I'm Rain Phoenix. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Today's very special guest is Allison Russell. Please welcome her to the show. Your voice is a revelation. You have such a beautiful singing voice. Uh, I would love to ask you how music first found you. You know, it's just been a part of my forever, like in the womb. My mom is a really beautiful piano player and she was like a baby when she had me. She was a kid and 17, 18 years old, but she played piano constantly. And those are, we had a really rough relationship. And when, after I was born, I think she had quite severe postpartum depression and, Mm. and untreated at the time. Um, schizophrenia like was sort of like the onset of it for her and she had was in pretty severe psychosis in my early early times and so it was rough between us but what I remember one of my happiest memories of that early time which was fraught in so many ways but this memory was like hiding underneath the piano when she was playing and she would just play for hours because it was it was therapeutic for her I think really and and I loved listening to her play so I would just hide under the piano and I could see her feet on the pedals and hear hear that resonance like underneath the piano itself and I'll it's just I could feel even though she couldn't really express her love in in other ways I could kind of hear it in the music if that makes any sense yeah, absolutely. Do you think that was uh, that contributed to an early attachment to music as a transformative way to deal with afflictive emotion and, tra- you know, fear? Yes, definitely. Yeah, and that was you know my mom, my mom and that side of the family are um, my grandma came from Scotland, and she knew so many really creepy old. <laughs> lullabies and ballads and like violent lullabies and um, these ballads that have, you know, that are the kind of, that was my first experience really of encountering the kind of the unwritten archive, you know, the oral archive and the oral tradition archive and realizing that these were often songs handed down between women, you know, and from, there was just something about that, those songs. And I loved them. I loved my grandma's songs and I loved those stories and I loved the allegory and the, and the kind of distilled human conditionness of those stories as well. And they were comforting. I mean, some of the most frightening ones were in a strange way comforting to me because they let me know that other humans through time had gone through things similar to what I was experiencing and survived and, there wow. was, yeah, I definitely think, um, you know, the escape of, of art 
was, I, I wouldn't, I really, it was a lifeline. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have survived my particular set of circumstances without having that escape. It's amazing to me, the ones that find that young and, and kind of, as opposed to, let's say, becoming crazy drug addicts or, you know, um, going totally well, negative, you know, they find yeah. a positive outlet in a sense. Find something that, that, that doesn't further compound the harm that's already been, that they've already experienced. Yeah, exactly. It's, and I really think it's like, even if you never make art yourself to be able to inhabit others, art helps us literally feel less alone. And in my case, it helped me even before I was writing my own songs even just reading, like I was an early reader and I think about what a gift in my life that was. And that's just a random, you know, why, why does one kid read early and another doesn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was an early reader and having that escape, literal escape of stories, like somewhere to go in my head. And when things were, you know, like my, my background, I was just, it was violence and abuse. And um, for a, over a decade, you know, actually certain parts of that started in the foster home, but it was much worse when I got adopted by my, my mother whilst I was in foster care was, uh, you know, married this much older man, an American expat um, from Monticello, Indiana, which was a sundown town on the books into the seventies, late seventies. And, you know, was raised in a very abusive family himself, was an abused child at one point himself, was raised with white supremacist ideology, which I believe is child abuse. You know, I believe like bigot, the kind of bigotry and racism is actually child abuse just as much for the child being indoctrinated as for the other children they eventually decide are others and lesser than, you know. Yeah. Um, it's It does harm 100%. all around, you know. Yeah. And he carried that with him, you know, the unhealed wounds of the civil war here, he carried those with him to Canada. And I think, you know, when he adopted me in his mind, I wasn't totally human or certainly not an equal human. You know, he believed that because he was brought up in an entire community that believed that to the point that they didn't let black people spend the night in their community, you know, for a long, into the 70s, late 70s. You know, like it's like like a real sundown town and that's like in the Midwest, you know, and like he believed that he was taught, he was brought up to believe that and he was an abused, had been abused himself and, you know, was, was carrying forward that cycle. And uh, I just think about what, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had the outlet of reading, of being able to imagine other worlds or have other people imagine them for me and then get to sort of play in their mind palaces via the book, you know, <laughs> via the, like, or in, in the same way that, that music and the stories in music did that for me, my grandma's old folk songs like that. Those are ancient stories that resonated yeah. for me. And I would find, you know, I was a very nerdy child and I would find, lots of fantasy and sci-fi and just ways to escape that felt mm -hmm. that, that really did. They, they protected my mind, even if I couldn't protect my body, you know, to some degree. Uh, one thing that I know that you eventually were able to do at such a young age was to actually find your way out of that situation physically. How do you mind sharing how you were able to do that? 
I don't mind sharing it all. I mean, honestly, it was, it got to the point of if I stay, then I, like, I think he would have killed me or we would have had a fight where we killed each other. I don't know. It was bad. You know, it was really bad. And I was 15 and, and it actually, the series of events where he had two children from a previous marriage, he's much older he's almost 30 years older than my mom is. And so he had grown kids and they, my eldest adoptive brother had two kids when he was very young, close together. And I actually, when I was 14, he, my eldest adoptive brother and his wife were having issues and the kids came to stay with us and I nannied them. I stayed home from school. I did homeschool that year. It was my eighth grade and I nannied these kids and it changed everything for me because it was the first time a that he hadn't been in my bed every night that I actually was able to because the kids were staying in my room and so he left me alone for the first time in my life and where then I could start to process some things and my mothering instinct came out in full force because I had to care for these babies you know that my niece was not one and my nephew was I don't know what he was, five, not even, he was like three months old. They were, they were babies, you know? Wow. And so it was for, it was very intense to be thrown into this role of mother, but also it was this relief to not have my adoptive father torturing me every night, you know? And it also made me understand how fucked up what was happening to me was, you know, like, it was like, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to, I'll, die you know I'm going to die and I couldn't I I needed to stay strong sort of for these for the kids and then when they went back to be with their dad I knew that I had to leave I knew that I just couldn't I couldn't stay in that home and, it, and that was one of the hardest things I've ever done particularly because I have a younger brother and it wasn't our home life wasn't as severe in some ways for him because of my our my adoptive father, his his biological father was, uh, you know, he, he focused his abuse on to, on women, on and women and females. Like he wasn't, he was not great to my brother, but he, he was not being sexually and physically abusive to my brother. But having to leave, even so, just having to leave him in that horrible environment was awful. But I was 15 and he was seven and I couldn't take him with me at that point, you know. Yeah, And so I just, I left and I would, I remember it was like a huge fight the night I left. And I actually, my dog defended me and bit my father and my adoptive father, I should specify, because I've since met my biological father and he's a wonderful man. And I don't want any mistake yeah. as who I'm talking about. My adoptive father, um, you know, started attacking my dog and I, I had pepper spray and I pepper sprayed him. And of course it we all had to pour out into the street because it pepper sprayed the entire house. And I just ran. I just started running and I basically never went back. And, wow. um, you know, but I, I had, I was in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal and I'm really lucky on a number of levels. Like Montreal is a very 24 hour city. There was like a cafe that I used to love to go to called the Croissant Royale on Saint Laurent. I don't even think it's there anymore. It's a different business now, but 
it was a 24 hour cafe and students from the McGill ghetto would like play chess there all night with old guys that were in there playing chess. You would just, I don't know, drink coffee all night and play chess. And I would go there and play chess and I would wander around on the mountain when it was cold. Um, I sometimes would sneak into the, the oratory or the Notre Dame Basilica and pretend to pray and just like nap <laughs> on a pew, you know, and I went to this alternative high school called Mind, Moving in New Directions, and there was a student lounge there. They would open usually an wow. hour before classes, and I would go and sleep on the couch in the, in the you know, in the student lounge. And then I, I also, you know, not long after leaving home, met my first love, and she would, she was so kind, and she would you know, I would peck on her basement window and she would let me in. I mean, that's what the song Persephone is about. That's she would, I mean, on winter nights, she saved my life, saved my life, you know, because you can't, you can't live outside in Montreal in the winter or you die, you know. So you were going to the same school you were going to when you were living with your abusive stepfather. You just stayed going to that school, but then you you just were homeless, basically. I was homeless and I didn't tell anybody. Unhoused. I'm sure sure there was, I was so ashamed of all of it. I couldn't, it took me years to to even talk about it. You know, it's so, it's so interesting to me when I, whenever stories of other survivors coming forward and there's always the, the chorus of voices that say, well, why didn't you say anything then? Why didn't you charge them? Why didn't you call the police? Why didn't you do that? It's like, well, I was 15 and I had been abused and brainwashed for a decade. And I also loved that man that he was also the only father I knew. And I was brainwashed for a decade and it takes a long time to deprogram to the point where you can then charge that person if you ever get to that point you know yeah and for me I did get to that point it took me five years I left home at 15 and I didn't charge him until I was 20 years old and the only reason he pled guilty to the charges are that other women came forward that he had also violated wow and that's the only reason so he did he did plead guilty he did go to jail for three years it was a three-year sentence he could have been out in nine months Oh when you think about the kind of sentencing that they give for nonviolent, you know, marijuana related crimes in yeah. a lot of places here in this country, yeah. it, it lets you know, like, okay, how are we valuing, yeah. how are we valuing our children actually, you know? Yeah. Um, especially female children too. Especially female children. Exactly. Females in and general. In the, and in my father, in this case, the judge said, one of the things he said was it was a light sentence because he pled guilty and therefore, if he pled guilty, that was showing remorse, even though, of course, it wasn't. It was his lawyer saying, this is how you get a lighter sentence, you know. Mm-hmm. And the judge also said, and you're relatively unscathed. You know, those were his words. Wow. And by that, he meant I'm not uh, I w- I'm, I'm not drug addicted and I am not involved in prostitution. That's what he meant by I am unscathed, because those are the, the statistical probable outcomes for a lot of women that have the same history that I have and or similar histories. And I thought, isn't that interesting? But if I were to, to, if that had happened, if I had met, you know, exactly what you were talking about, if I hadn't had the outlet of music, if I hadn't met the, the friends with love in their hearts and the chosen family that I met, if I, if all of those things hadn't happened for me, then 
very likely my outcome would have been self-medicating or prostitution or who knows what, you know? And when, when I was young and desperate and I was just incredibly lucky to have found a community that, that uplifted me and, you know, showed me that there was such a thing as kindness in the world. Like I was lucky for that, but had I not been, had I had a statistically probable outcome, then I would have had no credibility and he would not have even been found guilty, you know? So it's like, it's like you're, (laughs) what's, I thought, isn't that interesting? How how yeah. does this judge know that I'm unscathed? Because right. outwardly, because I can hold down a job or something like right. that means I'm fine, you know? Right. Yeah, I want to go back to um, something you said about you know being ready to process things and and the important like my own personal experience with the death of my brother and and how time is nonlinear and that you don't really um, experience grief or uh, the things that we all need due to trauma at the time, maybe that what you're supposed to, right? Or like how, how, why is there shouldn't really be any time limits on trauma. That's so courageous and so brave at that age, um, really to have done that. My hand was forced in a sense, what the catalyst was. So when I was, I left home at 15, I was, you know, sort of homeless and couch surfing for a while, sometimes sleeping in the graveyard in the summer and various things like that. But then when I was 16, I moved in with three other um, women that I met at my school who are dear friends to this day. And I got a horrible telemarketing job so I could pay the rent and, you know, was finishing high school and doing a year of what's called Cégep in Montreal, which is like a junior college, basically. And realizing that, uh, you know, pre-med health sciences and dissection of fetal pigs probably wasn't for me after all. And, you know, figuring that stuff out. And when I was 17, I moved across the country. I went from Montreal to Vancouver, British Columbia on the West Coast. And, um, you know, and part of my move was that I just needed physical distance from him, from my adoptive father, because he was sort of stalking me around the city and showing up places, you know, and um, it was, I just need, I just wanted to get far enough away that I would never, that I wouldn't have to see him, you know? And so I went to Vancouver and I'm connected with my mom's older siblings who lived there and a community of musicians and sort of came out of the closet as a songwriter in Vancouver and, you know, in my late, late teens. And when it wasn't until I got a call from my mom when I was 20 and and she told me that she had gotten a job and that she was going to be leaving the, the grandkids, my, my adoptive niece and nephew that I had nannied. My mom had been doing some nannying for them as well. And when she went back to work, she said she was going to leave them with, with my adoptive father. And I had like a full body, like breakdown, panic attack, freak out where it was. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would do to my niece, what he'd done to me if I, if I didn't stop it and that it would be 
on me too, because I knew, I knew what he, what he does. I know what he does. And I know it's a compulsive, he's a compulsive reoffender. And it was like, I had been telling myself this double think lie of like, it's fine. He's not hurting other people. It was just me, even though I knew that wasn't true on another level, but I, it's like, I could, what exactly what you're talking about. I couldn't process it. I couldn't face it. It was just denial, you know? And when I got that call from my mom, I was on the floor. I was like, it's going to be on me. I'm going to be just as responsible if I don't do something at this point. And so it forced me, it forced me to fly. I had to fly back to Montreal. I had to go to a police station and stand in line, you know, with the guy whose car got broken into and the woman who lost her mm. driver's, you know, her whatever, lost her purse. And it was like, had to stand in that line. And then I had to go up to the thick bulletproof glass and talk and, you know, sob out Ugh. what had happened to me, <laughs> to this man. It was like, I remember this, like his being completely expressionless staring at me you know and then eventually they assigned me at that point then they assigned me to like essentially like a special victims unit like the detective that was going to work on the case and I remember him sitting me down and saying well this is five years ago there's no physical evidence anymore I have to tell you that the vast majority of these cases don't end in conviction and you know are you sure you're up for this And I told him, like, this is the situation. He's going to do it again if he hasn't already. And I have to try and stop him. Will will starting this process stop him? And the detective said, yes. He Once he's under investigation, he won't be allowed to be alone with children. And so for me, it was like, that was it. That was worth it for that. Even if he never got convicted, at least I could disrupt the potential harm. Thank you for being one of those artists and one of those transformers. It's so important to highlight and discuss these stories and to be the storyteller that you are, that you're willing to share your story and that you do it through song and through such a beautiful body of work as your record. First of all, if there's anything you really want to share about the record. While it's a solo record and while it's obviously an autobiographical record, It is so much that recording, what you're hearing is this joyous assembly of some of my most beloved chosen family and friends and artists that I admire uh, who came together. We actually recorded it in October, early October of 2019 or late September of 2019. And it was around Americana Fest here in Nashville. We all happened to be home and I found out earlier that month that I had received a a grant from the Canada Council of the Arts to do an exploratory sort of writing and demo work. But I had basically outside child, these songs came out in a fever. Like I think they were a lifetime sort of gestating, but then they were like born over the space of three months Uh, between July 2019, when I was on the road with our native daughters, I started writing the first one on the, our native daughters tour bus and finished writing my partner, JT and I, my, my life and, and creative and, and writing partner, many of the songs on this record, uh, JT Nero and I were finishing Joyful Motherfuckers like the day we were going into the studio. And um, I just think that is the story. And, and I was in so, I was so 
you know, part of the legacy of, of abuse for me as a survivor has been a very deep fear of uh, putting myself forward in any way. And so the notion of doing like a solo record or a career under just my own name was like unthinkable to me for years and years and years. I was always much, felt much more comfortable being able to blend in with and disappear and sort of just be part of the the collective of, of various bands that I've been in. And so it was a terrifying proposition. In fact, I was still in some denial about that's what I was in, about embarking on, you know, I, even as we were going into the studio, but um, I was so excited to get to make music with people that I love and admire and who exactly as you say like up they're they're uplifters they uplift me and they uplift what I'm doing and they heard these songs and they just believed that it was important to record them and get them out there too and they uplift we were crying and laughing in the studio every day we did those songs in four days uh the the main the the sort of the bed tracks and my singing and then the Yola and Aaron Ray and Ruth Moody and the McCray sisters and I overdubbed the harmonies and the next sort of on the fifth day at Dan Nobler who produced the record at his at his home studio but we recorded at um, a studio called Sound Emporium which is run by an amazing woman Juanita and it's got a very deep storied history like there's songs in those walls and so many artists that I admire have have made music there and kind of just imbued that place with the spirit of creativity and community. And it, we felt that we felt that every day that we were there. And I felt that every day recording these songs, it was a joyful, it was painful, obviously some of it to sing, but it was also just an incredibly joyful experience to be surrounded by this community and to know that how far I have come from, from that time when I felt like I couldn't go on living, that there was nothing to live for to this being, be getting to become a mother myself, getting to be in this joyous community. My daughter came to the studio every day, you know, and would, and was like dancing in the control room while we were tracking. I mean, she, it was just Dan, his beautiful son, Dan Nobler, who produced the record and plays on it. His little son, Willoughby, and his amazing wife, Carrie, would come every, you know, and visit. And the kid, there was like family in the control room. There was, we were just like laughing and crying. And I hope that that can be heard, that, that just joyful communion that we experienced in recording it. I mean, each of those songs we recorded maybe three times and we usually took the second take except fourth day prayer which was the hardest song for me to sing and that took four takes actually and we took the fourth one for fourth day prayer but it was I would never I would never dream of telling any of those artists what to play or sing like it was just it was generosity and their artistic contributions that uplifted me and those songs and and helped me to feel safe to to sing that story and tell those stories and so I'm that's wow. what I want to know about the record. And I, um, Montreal, which is the song I think that you're about to play, is this record, as much as it's a, a kind of like a, a remembrance, it's a reclamation, it's, try, it's trying to come to a place of forgiveness for myself more than for anyone else to, to not 
because that carrying forward that sort of anger and it hurts that hurts me more than it will ever hurt him you know that's and he's i've come to see him with with compassion and empathy as a survivor who didn't who didn't have the magical circle of friends that came to sort of help me recover and learn that that life didn't have to be these cycles of abuse that there was life beyond that 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 kindness and love and real equality are possible you know with the people that in our lives and um he no one taught him that and so he's very sick he's a very sick person um and trying to come to a place of forgiveness you know and montreal is really a, a love song in a lot of ways to my city but and also a love song to the to the scared hurting broken kid that i was you know trying to sort of be a mother to my because as you say it's not linear like that child still exists somewhere you know you processing grief processing different things in our life it's not linear they're you know it's over it's like the multiverse it's these overlapping realities and that reality is somewhere and i'm trying to mother that kid a little bit i think through this song and and pay my respects to her because she didn't respect herself for so long you know yeah, well, bless, because you came in with a lot of generosity, regardless of the trauma you experienced and the things that happen is like your spirit. So hopefully it will influence others to, to, to do exactly that. It's so important that we, that we use our gifts to uplift and inspire, um, regardless of, of whatever happens to us, right? So, yeah. I mean, ideally, that's how we change the world, right? I think. I, agree. I believe. These, I believe it too. It's these baby steps because we are, we are more than the sum of our scars. And we do have this mysterious gift, this ability to exactly to transform and to transcend and to imagine something better, even if we've never experienced it. Like what, what a gift to have that, that activism of our imaginations, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then that can change reality. Like everything, you're exactly right. Every, anything, any sort of innovation or progress or healing thing that's ever happened starts as an, as, as a, as a leap in someone's imagination, you know, that this is possible and then it becomes reality, you know, it's so lovely to meet you and I'm honored that you had me on the show. Hi there, this is Allison Russell and this song is called Montreal. It's from Outside Child and you are listening to Launch Left. I'm a Montreal Can I dream of you tonight? Earth before the fire, your rose, your azure light. Oh, you cathedrals, your shadows felt like love. You would not let me come to her to reminisce on the time. 
times before there were just so few of them of them the jackal came and spring took me when i was still so young so young the mind of a child has oceans wide and a thousand millenniums and the city was my sky and stars if in that J'étais si vieille, j'étais si jeune, j'étais si jeune, si vieille. Les yeux de l'enfant voient tout, voient tout, voient tout, voient tout, tu sais. La lumière d'appeler sur les arbres, la pourriture dans la plus blanche mare, la sagesse bouleversant, la sagesse cœur brisant. Sagesse de l'enfant, que brisant, que brisant. Oh, maman, tu as, can I dream of you? left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. <laughs> 